step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This week's episode, as we've been doing at the end of every season, is all about you, the listeners. Over the years, the Truth and Justice Army has made huge gains in numbers and skill sets. We have tens of thousands of people from all around the world helping and engaging in all of our investigations. In this season, we have one particular listener who really caught my attention on the Facebook fan page. He's been around for a few years, he's a translator by trade, and has an uncanny knack for taking the spoken word and comparing it back to the record to help us all to sort out fact from fiction. For those of you who participate a lot on the Facebook fan page, you probably already know who I'm talking about. It's listener Wendell Moss. And recently, Wendell has helped to answer a question that has been burning in everyone's minds. After hearing the two hours of interviews with David Jacoby, Everyone, myself included, is trying to figure out what parts of his recollection can be verified as a factual timeline and what parts need to be thrown out, and where does that leave us with the timeline of his movements and the movements of Terry Hobbs on the night the boys were murdered. Wendell has done an amazing job of breaking all that down in several long posts on the fan page, so I invited him to come on to the season finale episode to share his breakdown of the timeline of events of David Jacoby and Terry Hobbs on the night Stevie, Michael, and Christopher went missing. And before I begin the interview, there's one little caveat that I want to make you aware of. Wendell lives in a very different part of the world from us, so we had to do our call over Skype. So because of that and the fact that the internet is not always the most reliable, you're going to notice in several parts of the interview where Wendell's voice tends to drop out a bit. Mike and I went through the audio and decided to go ahead and leave those parts of the audio in because through context, it's pretty easy to pick up on what Wendell was saying. And while it's not the easiest listen, every word that comes out of his mouth during this interview, I think is very important to our cause. So without any further ado, here's my interview with listener Wendell Moss. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. 
Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing like Ireland's wild Atlantic way. 1,600 miles of soaring cliffs, dreamy remote islands, and buzzing little towns. Not to mention the seafood. Oh, the seafood. And if you drive with Irish ferries, you'll arrive relaxed and ready to explore. Bring the whole gang, pets and all. Fill the boot with goodies and get a warm Irish welcome before you even get to Ireland. Hop across from Hollyhead to Dublin. Book early at irishferries.com and see travel differently. Terms and conditions apply. So, Wendell, you have been very involved in, in our last couple of seasons. Um, so before we get into your background a little bit, I'm, I'm trying to remember back when you first got involved in the fan page. I remember you were in and did a lot of work during season seven. Um, is that when you came in or were you in before that? No, it was it was actually this one. It was season five. Uh, this is the case that's very, very personal to me. Uh, it was probably my my doorway into true crime. I mean, I I followed serial and I knew about serial dynasty, but I I honestly I didn't listen to Truth and Justice until I saw that you were going to be doing something on the West Memphis Three, and then I got really excited because. I had been a lurker, I would call myself, for a lot of years, you know, reading the the forums about the West Memphis Three, but never actually posting anything or never actually uh, participating in any of it. So when I saw that you were going to be doing this in real time, I was like, okay, now I finally get to, to take part. So I, I joined the page then, and uh, I stuck around. Nice. And, and you know, I hopefully it seems like you found a, a comfortable place where you can come in and have conversations. You know, it's, it's taken our, our admins. I want to give a little shout out to them. They have done a pretty fantastic job, especially with a very controversial case of keeping the, our, our space in that fan group as a place where conversations can happen that actually get something done and are productive. Absolutely. I think they've done a phenomenal job and, and I know it's gotten, it's gotten contentious a couple times between, you know this case and then sandy's case (laughs) oh yeah there's been drama but uh i think they've done a great job in in general i feel very comfortable talking on fan page and i i think you know people are generally smart and we we occasionally will get some of the crazy theories but even when we do people are pretty good about sorting them out and figuring out what is good information what is bad information and also, people just, you know, they respond when I when I post something, they they respond well. People seem to value that I I that I can contribute. So uh, I enjoy that makes me enjoy it more when I when I see that people are reading what I write and uh, and responding and asking questions. And I, you know, I, I love it. You know, you you said the word lurker. Um, it would it would surprise people to know how much of a lurker I am. You know, when 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 uh, it's actually Chris Brinkley, who's one of the admins, originally started that page after a fan meetup. Uh, him and Holly Murdoch and uh, Elias uh, all started that page after a fan meetup in Dallas one time. And, you know, there was 50, 75 people that, that were in there. And I used to participate a lot. And then, you know, now there's over 10,000. And there's, you know, every time I, I refresh my phone, there's there's 20 new posts. <laughs> so I'm I'm not involved as involved in the conversations as much as I used to be. Plus, it just you know things are busier now. With you know, I was working so many cases at the same time. Uh, but I I I do I do the listeners. You guys should know that 
I do read most of the posts. I'll skim through and and read through them, and and that's kind of how I ended up asking you to come on for for this week's kind of fan tribute episode. Is because you know I I before we started recording, I told you that you know some of the posts you've done lately. This is a difficult time for me because we were full throttle investigating our season eight case when oxygen just dumped on us that, Hey, in two weeks we're releasing your TV show and we had to jump back to this one. So I'm, you know, my brain is two years behind on the West Memphis three case. And I'm reading some of these posts that you're putting together where you're taking, you know, namely, and we'll talk about this probably in detail, uh, the David Jacoby interviews and you're cross-referencing with all these police reports and dispatch logs and all these things to, to try to really piece together a timeline. And I'm, I'm reading it thinking, Huh, I, I remember when I used to do stuff like that when I had time to yeah. to, to go through um, because I, I really feel out of place almost with this. But you but you put together some some pretty incredible posts and they're always really insightful. And and I, I kind of want to start now with talking a little bit about your background, because you you tend to get excited and jump into the conversation a lot when we hear someone speaking and and you have a background and not linguistics. Right. But in, in translation. Right. In, in language and in, in translation, you know, I, I, I studied literature in college and my mom was a, a German teacher. So I was always interested in language. I, I grew up hearing foreign languages around the house and I developed an ear for it. But specifically what I try to get involved in, in, in terms of using my skill set with uh, ear cases is that as a a translator, one of the things that I've had to train myself to do is to parse text for meaning. And there's a huge difference between language in terms of the words that are used and meaning. And when you're translating, if you take a source text and you just word for word go from one language to the next, you end up with a bunch of gibberish. Mm-hmm. So what I've had to do is I have to say, okay, well, these words are being used, but what do they mean? And I have to get the meaning in my head and then kind of recreate the meaning in English. And I would say that as a translator, that that's what I do. It, it, it's like putting together a puzzle. Uh, I have to take all the information that's in the source text and the context and the tone and the language and then recreate that in English. So what it's taught me to do is be just very sensitive to the difference between words and and meaning. And when we get into these cases, like you said, I I get really excited when people start talking because, you know, I also part of my background is I I used to uh, work for somebody who was a little bit of a media figure in the, in the realm that I, that, language pair that I work in. And so I did a lot of interview translation, a lot of interview interpreting. I did transcript translation, you know, conferences, people talking contemporaneously. And what it does is you you learn in terms of context, you learn when to fill in the context and uh when to leave it out. Because a lot of times when you go between two languages, there's information that's implicit. When two people are talking in one language and they both know what they're talking about, you know, like 
you and I, like if I were to say right now, uh, Zach and Mike, you know who I'm talking. And so when we're talking, you don't say, I don't say every time your producer Mike or you know uh, your your co-host Zach, because you don't need me to give you that information. But uh, somebody who is listening to our conversation for the first time, or when I'm producing that as a translation, I have to put myself in the perspective of somebody who doesn't know that information. And so even though we may not have used that information in a conversation, I have to know when I have to fill in those details as a translator. So it's taught me to, to look below the surface and find the, the information because a lot of times when people are talking contemporaneously, they don't use precise language. And we get situations, especially in the West Memphis case, where you get people that they start going through these interviews and they take one sentence or they take one paragraph and they said, oh, well, Jesse said this this time and, you know, and that means he's guilty. And when you look at the whole text, and look at the context of how he was saying that and and the way that those things came out, it, it, it tells a different story. So I, I try to deep in there and, and get the full context of each statement. Yeah, your research is is impeccable where you uh, you know when you're when you're taking those things and then contrasting them or comparing them to the statements that were made. It's, it's, there's there's three three things that two of them I know you've heard obviously the David Jacoby interviews that we've aired over the last two weeks. And, uh, and I'm, you've, you've looked pretty deeply into the Jesse Miss Kelly interviews, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and now what about, I'm trying to remember on the, from your post on the fan page, have you watched much of Terry Hobbs depositions? I did. Okay. So l- let's start with the most, um, the one that's most topical right now. Uh, which is David Jacoby's interviews and you piece together a timeline and there's parts of his interviews that really can be kind of corroborated and other parts that maybe are up in the air. So I, I just want to, you know, have the floor uh, to explain, you know, what you thought in general about David's interview and and where you think that leaves us timeline wise. Yeah, sure. So one thing that I was really interesting actually because i was this is fresh in my mind because i was just watching the video now is when when david was looking at those maps or or when he was talking about the the streets he went down and things i got the impression that he was looking at a map while he was talking because he would say things like yeah seventh street and when people use that kind of language what it means is that they're remembering something in in real time but when i watched the video just now he wasn't looking at a map, it seemed to me. So it seems to me that that's probably actually him recalling something in real time. But the main thing that I got from David's interviews, so there's three separate events that he discusses. There's when he gets home from work and Terry comes up the first time, and then Terry leaves, then Terry comes back a second time and they drive around the neighborhood. Then Terry leaves again, and then Terry comes back third time. So when you're listening in real time, it gets pretty confusing. But what people need to understand that's significant is it's that, that there's three separate events that occur. And the reason that this is important is because 
in Terry's police interview and in the, the deposition, that's not the story that he tells. What he says in those interviews is that he, after he took Pam to work, he came home and then he and Amanda drove around uh, the neighborhood for a period of time. And then he went to David and then they were together the whole night. So in Terry's story, there is a period where he's searching and then a period when he's with David. But in David's telling events, there is two periods where Terry is not with him. And when it gets really, really interesting is when you look at specific times, because in his police interview and in the deposition tapes, Terry is very adamant that he, his search took place before 6.30, and that after 6.30, he was together with David the whole time. In the police interview, what he says is that he took Pam to work at Catfish Island, and on the way to work, they stopped by the house of Dana Moore, and Dana was not home. Only Dawn was home, and Dawn actually corroborated this in your interview with her when uh, she said that you know her mother was not home that day. And that's one of the reasons that I believe that that event did happen, because there was no way that Terry would know that Dana wasn't home unless he had actually gone by the house that day, because most of us didn't know that Dana wasn't home. That's not the story that she told right. at trial. trial. She said that she got home uh, 10 minutes after uh, Michael got home from school. So uh, the fact that Terry knows that Dana wasn't home and, and Pam also told a similar story tells me that, yes, that did happen. Uh, on his way to driving Pam to work, he stopped by Dana Moore's house. And then we we get into... Did he go to David's or did he go searching? And in his story that he tells, he and Amanda drove around all over West Memphis, is how he puts it, those words he used. Uh, when he was asked for specifics, he put given, said uh, all over West Memphis. And then he says that at around 6.30, he actually went near the discovery site. And then after that is when he went to David's specifically for the purpose of dropping Amanda off with David's wife and having her babysit and also recruit David to to help him search, or that's what he said. Now, that contrasts with what David said, which was that Terry came to the house, that he was going interested in going to look for Stevie then, but Terry, uh, I mean, David convinced him to stay at the house and uh, it's pretty women on pretty woman on the car but when i looked at terry's statement to the police there was something that jumped out at me which was that at 6 30 when he says that he was near the discovery site and then that after that he went to david's he uses the words i went back to david he says you know at that point i can't remember i don't have the exact words in front of me right now but he does say go back or went back, which jumped out at me because in his version of events, he hasn't been to David that day yet. That tells me that probably David is correct and that there were two separate events. And so 
Uh, be, that's that's not what. So go ahead, Bob. I was going to say before you move on from that, I wanted to jump back to quickly because one of the things that jumped out from me at the interview, it, from Terry's interview, where he says that he was out by the discovery site at six thirty, and he specifically says six thirty, if I remember correctly. He does. Yeah, and that that jumped out to me because one of the things that we've profiled, uh, that Jim profiled, and 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 I agree with him, is that the, the level of concealment indicates that that our offender believes either they know that people know that they've been that they were seen in that area with the boys or they believe or perceive that someone could know and so for me that was something that jumped right out of me it's like right about the time we think that the boys were killed terry makes a point to say you know and 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 when i'm looking at interviews i'm always looking at are they consistent you know so He's very vague. I don't know where I went. I looked all over West Memphis, things like that. Very vague stuff. But then he specifically says, at 6.30, I was at the discovery site, which to me is, is a potential indicator that, you know, those that choice of words. And then when he chooses to be specific there, to me, I thought he doesn't know when the police are calling him in, if they have new witnesses, who's seen what. So he's he's making sure that if someone says they saw him there around 6.30, that he's saying, yeah, I was there at 6.30, I was searching. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right. I agree. I don't necessarily want to get into... uh... how I feel about what the significance of this is uh, right now. Like sure. uh, here, we talk about that on the page, but yeah, no, I agree with you that he is very specific about that time in all of his interviews. He is adamant about what he was doing at six o'clock and at six thirty, and everything else is vague. And this is why it's so interesting, the discrepancy between, his story and David's story is because the point that David places him not with him is in fact between uh, 6.30 and 8. And I'll, I'll tell you how I got to that in a minute. But in terms of that 6, 6.30 timeline, the other thing, and we've talked about this before, is that Terry says that at 6 o'clock, Ada Moore came to his house they spoke in that he followed Dana Moore back to her house. And while he was there, he met John Mark Byers and three of them. 
figured out that at that moment that all three boys were together and uh, that they needed to keep looking for them. And the reason this is interesting is that is not possible. That could not have happened at 6 o'clock because we know from Mark Byer's police interview and from Dana Moore's testimony at two trials that they did not realize that all three boys were together until 8.09, which is when Regina Meek went to Mark Byer's house after Byer called while she was at the buyer's house, Dana Moore saw the police car in the driveway, came over to Mark's house, and then she them. I saw all three boys together. Uh, she gives different times. She said 6, she said 6.15, and also 6.30. But somewhere in that range, she saw all three of them together, and Mark Byers has said that he did not know that there were three boys until he heard and the police did not until they heard this idea that at six o'clock harry and and john mark byers are having a conversation about three boys being together is is just a non-starter because no one even considered them missing it so we get back to what you just said why does he say this happened at six o'clock and john mark byers actually filed where he says, I had a conversation with Terry Hobbs, and, and with, where this story first emerged is when Terry wrote his book, and that's when he said it happened at six o'clock. And John Mark Byers said he spoke to him, he said, no, you know, that happened at eight. I called the police at eight. That's when I found out the boy was missing. That was at eight. And he claims that during this call, uh, Terry was screaming at him, no, it was at six, it was at six, it was at six. So we get back to what you were just saying, which is this 6, 630 thing that Terry is adamant about what he was doing at those times. And it is not consistent with what David said that he was doing and what everybody else says that they were doing so getting back to it event two in david's timeline so after they've uh, been practicing pretty woman on guitar at some point terry leaves don't know how long he's gone uh he comes back and they search the neighborhood and i did some uh i plugged the routes that he mentioned in the interview into uh google maps and we figured out that you know, based on different speeds, like by, at five miles per hour, if he was driving really slow, and they say they were driving slow, uh, at like five miles per hour the whole time, it would have taken them 30 minutes to complete that search. If uh, they were driving at 10 miles per hour, it would have taken them about 22 minutes. At 15 miles per hour, it's possible they could have completed that entire search in, in about 18 minutes what i think it was so now we are at if we say 40 minutes to an hour that they played guitar and we know terry took pam to to work at before five it's a two three minute drive from catfish island back to their house we know that terry parked his truck at david's house so we can guess that probably came to david's house at around five if they played guitar for 40 minutes an hour 
that puts us between 540 and 6 that he leaves the first time. Then when he comes back, and David told you it was a little bit after 6, sometime after 6, at most 30-minute search they do at that time, we're now looking at a time of about 640, 645 that he leaves the house again. And this is the key thing now is how do we figure out when he comes back, how long he is gone during that gap, according to David's story. And the way that I piece that together, and there's been some pushback on this, was that I went back and I listened to the interview that Don Moore did with you uh, a couple years ago during season five. And at the time of that interview, what she was saying really seemed like an outlier. Um, am I right? Like, I think we all, right? Like, she was talking about seeing Terry at his house and, you know, her mom not being home and then going out to dinner and all of these things. And none of us had ever heard that before. Right. So I, I hadn't given it much thought until then. because I thought it was an outlier. I thought, well, she was, you know, she was very young. She must be remembering it's wrong. But then when I went and I looked at Dana Moore's trial testimony, it actually lines up with a lot of what Dawn was saying. Dana says that they were down on the south side of the neighborhood searching for about an hour or an hour and a half. And this overlaps with the time that Dawn told you that she, her mother took her to dinner and that they were down looking around uh, the Hobbs house. And so Dana, uh, Dawn told you that this took place before they spoke to the police. And she says it was on the way back from that trip that they saw the police at the buyer's house. And that makes sense to me because, you know, how did Dana notice that the police were in the driveway of John Mark Byers house? Like was, was she walking around or was she, you know, looking blinds or did, you know, was Meek running the sirens when holding? Like, it makes more sense to me that they would see this as they were coming back, um, as they're pulling into their driveway. Hey, the police are over at Mark's house. I'm going to go talk to them. And that also lines up with Dawn told you, which was that on the way back from that trip, that's when they saw the police. Right. She said that they, if I remember correctly, she said that they went down to the Hobbs house and her mom talked to Terry right before they went and talked to the police. So that's what I thought at first. And then somebody pointed out to me that actually she says she's not sure. And I went back and I listened again and, and she does say, I can't say that it was right before she says what she says was that we went by multiple times and I'm not really sure what that means. I don't know if it means that they rang the bell multiple times, which is an interesting thought. Because if they rang the bell multiple times, the first, you know, say two times he wasn't there, well then, uh, where was he? Uh, but I, that's putting words in her mouth. All she says is they drove by there multiple times. So she's not sure 
exactly when they rang Terry Bell and when they talked to Terry. She's sure that she saw the police as they were driving back. And that fits with, you know, what I just described, which is, is them seeing the police car in the buyer's driveway as they're pulling into their own driveway. But she's not sure when they talked to Terry. So this leaves us with an intriguing question, which is that sometime between 7 and 8 p.m., and we know that is the time because we know that Regina Meek arrived at the buyer's house at 8.09. So the earliest that they could have been pulling into the driveway and seeing Regina Meek uh, at the buyer's house is 8.09. So that means that they're coming back from the Hobbs house at around 8 o'clock. And so sometime between 30 uh, or 6 o'clock, which is when Dana saw the boys together, and 8 o'clock, which is when they drive back to their house and see Regina meet, uh, sometime in that interval, they talk to Terry at his house. Is it closer to 8? Is it closer to 7.30? Is it closer to 7? We can't say for sure. Just thinking about it on my end, why were they down in that the neighborhood in the first place? And the reason is, I think, because they knew that Michael was Stevie. And you remember, Dana, she said that when she saw the three boys, they were headed in the direction of Robin Hood Wood. So why weren't they searching down at Robin Hood Wood? Why were they searching down the south part of the neighborhood? And Dawn actually gets into this in interview, which she said she she said, I told my mom they were down by the wood and she listened to me. So why? Why would they use this difficulty searching? And the thing that makes sense to me is because they knew that like it's Stevie. And so they're searching down by the the Hobbs house to see they're around there. And I think they're wanting to talk to figure out if Michael was over there. So when are they going to get that up and go back to their home? And it makes sense to me that they do that after they talk to Terry. They, they, you know, like they've accomplished their mission, which was to talk to him. And now they know that Michael is with him. So now that they, they can go home. So I still believe that this took place at around eight o'clock uh when they talked to Terry at his house. There have been people who have challenged that, but you know, I'm I'm giving my reasoning here. I believe it took place at eight o'clock. So that means that it's after eight when Terry goes back to David's house. And that means that there is that gap between six forty or so and eight o'clock when Terry is not with David. And this also fits with uh, what David said happened after that. As you have said yourself, David originally said that he and Terry searched down by the wall at 7.30. This is the, the third installment of their trip when they, they do a second trip around the neighborhood and they go to the woods. And 
I think what we can say, and I agree with your approach here, which is that if the event that David is describing is accurate, if it's true, and if that's what happened, it would not have happened at 7.30. Because the events that he's describing, the things that other people are doing, teenagers being out searching, the cop being at the dead end, uh, the families being out there, that did not happen at 7.30. It happened after 8.30, which is when the with John Mark Byer was completed. Regina Meek marks down on the police logs. 8.29 is the time that she finishes the interview. So that means the earliest that they could have gone over the dead end would have been 8.30. So uh, basically, they do 30-minute search if they did a 30-minute search starting at 8 and ending at 8.30, that would put them at the dead end exactly at the time that Ryan Clark and his friends and Regina were converging on the dead end. And that fits perfectly with what he told you. So I do believe that between 8.30 and 8.42, David and Terry were at the dead end. Mark Byers also said in his original police interview, the the language he uses is is very confusing and he seems to be uh, conflating different events. But what he says was, after they talked to Regina, he walked down the street with Ryan. They spoke to, quote unquote, a little black girl who lived down the street who told them that she had seen the boys down by the entrance to Robin Hood Woods. And Terry, uh, Mark Byers says that after that, he went back to his house. And the, the exact words he uses is, around that time, Terry Hobbs had showed up. So we don't know where Terry had showed up, if it was at, in front of Mark's house, or if it was, I think it was more likely that this was at the dead end because that's where they're all converging. So that again, it fits with what he says that after talking to Regina Meek, a few minutes passed and then Terry was there. And then David also says that, uh, after 30 minutes of searching, they were down at the dead end and there were other people there. And Regina Meek also says at, she spoke to someone who indicated to her that the they boys had been seen at the dead end going into the woods. And she described walking to the pipe bridge and shining her flashlight down there and saying, oh, well, the mosquitoes are heavy right now. There's no boys are still out there. So how did she know to go to the pipe bridge? David says that he told a police officer about seeing muddy footprints on the pipe bridge. So that fits with somebody telling Gina Meek to go search by the pipe. And we know that at 8.42 is when Regina Meek received the phone call to go to the Bojangles restaurant. And so we know that all of these events must have happened before 842. So between 830 and 842, 
was when they were down by the pipe. So the question then becomes, how long had they been searching before then? And that's the only way that we're going to figure out or have any idea of when Terry came back to David's house is tracking back from that 830 to 842 period and, and going backwards. And again, I looked at Google Maps and again, the longest, I think, or sorry, the, the minimum time that they would have needed to do the drive around was around 20 minutes. And then there's all the so that talk about him getting out of the car, going to the store, and then them walking between the houses on W.E. Cat. So, you know, give them another 10 minutes for that. I figured out based on, you know, the math that I did that they could have done that entire thing in 30 minutes and ended up at the dead ends. It's possible, I think, that this search started at 8 and finished at 8.42, and then Terry uh, drove David home and picked up Pam at work. And again, that makes sense because Pam got off work at clock. So these times uh, seem to fit. The only question is, when did Terry talk to Dana Moore at his house? And when did he go back to David's house? Right. And it's everything you did with the police reports and stuff to come up to that 830 to 842 timeline, the statements made by Meek, it all it, it all lines up. And, and I kind of backed into that time in a different way. I used the um, the weather data. And it, I think I, we, you and I had discussed for a little bit on the, on the fan page about how all that went down. And so, you know, what had happened was David told me this story and he told me that it was seven 30 when he got to the pipe and he was convinced of that is one of the reasons why I believe David so much, because he was adamant in his memory. That's when it was, it was seven 30. And I say it took some convincing, but that sounds like I tried to change his time, but that that's not what I mean by that. The, you know, the way I got to it was okay. We did cognitive interview. Talk about what you saw, what you smelled, what you heard. You know, what were your sensory memories from then? And he was describing this time where the reason he didn't cross the pipe when he saw the muddy footprints was because it was the the water was raging, real the the current was bad. He was concerned about you know what would happen if him or any of those teenagers fell in. And it was almost dark. And so he thought, you know, they should get some flashlights if they're going to search anymore. And the mosquitoes were coming in. And so then what I did with him is then told him, I said, well, here, you know, it wasn't almost dark at 730. The sun didn't set for another 21 minutes after that. And he's still, no, I'm sure it's it, it was 730. I said, okay, well, and you heard him talk in the interview how, you know, he, you know, I the next night I was staying in a hotel near him. And I said, okay. Right now, you know, on that particular, I'm like, okay, sunset is right now. So look outside. And was it darker than this? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, well, now watch and see. It wouldn't be exactly the same. It was a different time of year. But, you know, civil twilight, nautical twilight tends to be, you know, about the same amount of time after sunset, any time of year. It's just the sunset moves up. And, you know, he, so he said he watched and watched and watched. And he said, sure enough, it was about 45 minutes after. After the sunset, when it got to be as dark as it was when he was at the pipe. So then the next day I went back and this was all unrecorded interview. This was just kind of our our, our pre-interview stuff that we were working on prior to the actual interview. 
And uh, you know, he said, "Okay, so well, well, the sunset makes sense, but I'm still sure at 7:30. That's just it's crazy to me. Maybe it's daylight saving time, whatever. But he he agreed that it had to have been, you know, around 45 minutes after sunset when this occurred. And that's when then we brought out the police reports. I said, "Okay, well, there was a police officer down there. John Mark Byers was down there. Regina Meek was it was the first officer on scene at his house at 8:09, and they she cleared at eight or 8:08, and she cleared at 8:29." And then she went down to the pipe and and that's how. So when, when you saw in the interview where he seemed at that point sure that this was probably around 845 or so, which, you know, really it, it was you know with the Bojangles call. You're right. It would have been more like probably 840 or 835 uh, because she was gone by 842 that, you know, when he saw all of that, that's when he said, OK, everything that makes sense. Everything lines up perfectly with it being 845, and so he almost reluctantly agreed that it must not have been 730. It must have been closer to 830. Right. And like I said, that fits with John Mark Byers saying Terry Hobbs had showed up by then, describing this period after 830. So um, I think all of these different approaches that we've taken, you took the 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 weather approach the 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 narrative approach and the record all seem to agree that they were there at between 8:30 and 8:42 right and and that leaves you know with the the work you did on the first half you know between you know the problem with that 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 second trip the for the well the first instance of a being there playing guitar and the second trip is there so much conjecture in the time? And David doesn't claim to know. You know, he's told me they probably played guitars for around thirty minutes. He said, I think in the interview he said it was maybe forty-five minutes. It was less, less than an hour. Less than an hour, he said. Yeah, and and you know, so so really, we don't. You're not watching a clock. It could have been fifteen minutes. It could have been an hour and a half. We really don't know how long that took. Exactly. Uh, but it, but it seems like around. Somewhere I agree. You know the the most logical place that makes sense to me is somewhere around six thirty, is when Terry left after their search, and then he showed back up around eight o'clock. And you know, give or take, it could be it could be six forty, six forty five, could be six fifteen. But I, I I I really was impressed with your assessment of backing. You know, I I had kind of backed into that search must have started at eight, based on I know when you were at the end of the pipe. You know, based on the weather and based on when Regina Meek was there and based on when John Mark Byer was there, uh, Byers was there. And if you backtrack for the, the the route, that puts you back at your house at around eight when he showed up. But then when you add in and what I hadn't thought of that you brought up was the interaction with Dawn and Dana Moore going to a, to Terry's house. And then after that or sometime shortly after that, going and finding the police at John Mark Byers. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't wasn't the. Wasn't Byer's statement or and maybe even Meek's statement that uh, Dana walked across the street as she was leaving the Byer's residence? That's I, I think it's a little a uh, little different from that. It's it's Meek says that uh, Dana walked over while she was giving the uh, while she was taking the report from John Mark Byers. Dana Moore walked over and said, you know, my son is with them and and he's missing too. And she said that she wanted to get a report from Dana there. But by the time she had finished taking the report from Mark Byers, Dana had already left. 
was how she put it. Now, what you might be remembering is is that Mark Byers, after Terry published his book, saying that he had been there when this was all taken, that he had talked to Dana and Mark at, at six o'clock, Mark Byers then recalled, and, and I'm a little bit skeptical about this, because he doesn't mention it in his original statement, and Dana never mentions it either, but he says he does recall now, as Regina Meek was leaving, Terry Hobbs coming on the scene. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Right. And the, the problem with Mark Byers and with a lot of the people are that their stories have changed so much. Yeah. You know, and, and Mark seems to be one that is very susceptible. I, there, there are people that are still convinced he's guilty, and I'm not here to question that. But, you know, what, what, I, what it seems to me is he's very uh, susceptible to suggestion. Whereas, you know, anytime any new evidence comes out, he re-remembers things that fit that evidence, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you, yes. see, you see that when you track all of his. And I've sat down and talked to Mark in his living room and, and, and done an interview with him. And it was the same thing, you know, whatever he knew at that time, that's what happened. And, and maybe I'm just misremembering or maybe, or, or maybe it was, do you remember if maybe in Mark's original police statement, I feel, I feel like somewhere along the line, Mark had said, that as we walked outside, maybe it was in my interview with him, as they walked out, that's when Dana came across the street, you know, after the, after they had taken the report. But I, I could be I could just be, you know, I could be just as guilty of you I'm, know. I'm going by what what Meek said at trial. Right. And uh, that what what she said at trial was that she wanted to get the report from Dana. But then by the time that she was done with the report, uh, Dana was gone. Right. You know, speaking speaking of Meek, have you looked into some of her trial testimonies and statements you know, over the years? Yes. What do you make of that? Because you know, specifically, she at one point I don't remember where she testified, whether it was a trial or at one of the you know another hearing somewhere, but she said that she had sent Officer Moore down to Terry's house to talk to him. Right. That's impossible. Yeah, I I do not believe that that happened. So a little, a little background on that is her testimony at the trials, the original two trials, trials of Jesse, Miss Kelly and the trials of uh, Damien and Jason Baldwin. Everybody needs to remember there were two trials. So Meek testified twice. And the reason that people sometimes have trouble with her trial testimony, understanding it is because the defense was making an issue out of the Bojangles man and Meek did not want to talk about the Bojangles incident at all. And so she avoids mentioning it at all uh, during the Jesse Miss Kelly trial. And in during the uh, Eccles Baldwin trial, she only brings it up after the defense really kind of pin her down on it and question her about it. So, that's why when people go back and they read her trial testimony, like, 
but this doesn't make sense. First, she says that she's searching the whole night, and then, and then she says she was only searching ten minutes, and then she says uh, she was here, and then she says she was there. She was trying to just be vague enough that the subject of the Bojangles man would not get brought up. And then once it was brought up, she had to backtrack and say, yes, okay, well, I got called away to that, so I only had time to do this search at the dead end about 10 minutes. And then they, they get into a back and forth with her as well about whether she got out of her car or not and all of these things. So that was the original story. Then, after the DNA hits happened and the Natalie Pazdar, or sorry, the Natalie Maines and, and the Pazdar lawsuit where Terry sued the Dixie Chicks happened, Meek filed an affidavit on behalf of Terry Hobbs for his lawsuit saying that I sent Officer Moore by Terry Hobbs's house that night after I talked with John Mark Byers at his house. And so any suggestion that the police never visited Terry's house that night is untrue. And the context of her making the statement is it's right around the time that the Terry had his with the West Memphis PD. And when you go back and you look at that interview, it's clear that they don't want any part of it. Like him, his, you know, his hair being at the crime scene, any suggestion that he's the killer, any suggestion that anyone other than the three men who were charged is the killer, they don't want part of it. And so they're in full, basically, cover your ass mode at that time and I'm fairly certain that's what Regina Reese was doing as well is that they were in a full-fronted effort to aid Terry Hobbs at that the reason that I think that is A, the fact that at two trials she never mentioned talking to Officer at all that night until later on when they're doing the search after, you know, 10 p.m., which is after she gets back from Bojangles and after Moore arrives from Catfish Island. It's B, Officer Moore also testified at two trials and was asked point blank by the defense, before you went to Catfish Island and spoke to Terry Hobbs, did you have any involvement in the search that night? And he says no that the first involvement that he had in the search was when he went to Catfish Island after Terry called the police and Moore spoke to him in the parking lot. And then after speaking to her, he went to the neighborhood and joined the search. And then we get into the fact that Meek's story is that as she's taking this statement from John Mark Fires, which we know was between the 809 and 829 is when this statement was taking place. That's when she's making her police report. And she says that as she was finishing this report, Officer Moore, she actually says, and, and this makes no sense, she says that he came and went twice. She says that he was there at the beginning and then he left and then he came back and he said, 
I've heard that the the mother of Stevie Branch, uh, Pam, is not at home. I just talked to somebody who told me that she's not at home, that she's at work, and then uh, Officer Big says that she then told Officer Moore, okay, well, why don't you go by their house and see if anybody's home? And the reason that this makes no sense is that, well, first of all, we're talking about a 20-minute period here between 8.09 and 8.29, Officer Meek is the one who was dispatched to the scene to take this report. Officer Moore is not even supposed to be on the scene. Why would he be in the neighborhood at all, let alone walking around, talking to people, asking where Pam Hobbs was? And why would people down in the neighborhood by where Mike Ward is know anything about where Pam Hobbs was? And why would Regina Meek be sending him to talk to Terry at his house when we now know that Terry and David were down at the dead end? And then the final uh, kind of uh, piece of the, the puzzle is that we know that Officer Moore was somewhere else at that time. Right. He was He was taking somebody to jail. It's in the dispatch logs. Exactly. Right at that time, it says, uh, I can't remember the exact point. Uh, it, it says 8.30 or something like that, right? I think so, yeah. It's like 8.30 to 8.50 or some, somewhere around there is when he checked out. Right. I don't remember the exact times, but it was essentially, by looking at that, you can tell, besides all the other reasons why it doesn't make sense, that it's provably false that any of that occurred. Yeah, uh, he he could not have been there. He was taking somebody to to jail, and there was a question somebody brought up. There was a a, a poster on 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 the fan page who brought up the fact that the handwriting on the log slip is a little bit illegible, and that it could read that this prisoner transfer ended at eight thirty. Is what I think they said, rather than eight fifty. Like there's there's question whether it's a three or a five. Either way, I don't think there's any chance that Moore was in the neighborhood with Meek after doing this prisoner transfer, even if it took place at an earlier time, and then going back and forth and questioning people and then going to the Hobbs house. No matter what way you look at it, this does not make sense. And the only feasible explanation that I can come up with is that they were trying to cover for Terry at that time. Right. Which which opens up a whole nother can of worms that you know we don't have time to get into. But it's that when I was reading it, it's it seemed like Regina Meek in her affidavit was making a concerted effort to protect Terry. And the statement she gave in it is I, I don't know if they have a personal relationship. I don't know if she's trying to cover her own ass or cover the police the police department's ass. But like you said, even even if that time log, even if we're wrong, and it's if he if he cleared the prison transfer at eight thirty, she cleared the uh, the buyer's house at eight twenty nine. Exactly. It's yeah. st- it still doesn't work. There in no way does anything that that she said worked, and, it, and it's unfortunate that we have a law enforcement officer, which we should be where we should be able to go to get some answers to some of these questions, and all she does is make more questions. Yes, and it does not reflect well on the mindset that the police department has about this case and 
their involvement in it that they would need to make this concerted effort, as as you put it, to change the record after the fact. That reflects some uh, anxiety on their part, I would say. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, so, you know, and, and kind of wrapping this this up, we have, I, th- I think I am convinced and it seems like you are. And I, I think I think the record indicates pretty clearly that we, we, we can say with pretty good confidence that around eight o'clock, Terry and David left. They searched. They ended up down at the dead end. They split up and David went with the teenagers down through the followed the bike tracks. Ended up at the pipe somewhere between 8.30 and 8.42. He came out, talked to Regina Meek in her car, and then they went and dropped him off. And and on the other end of that, the searching, the back and forth, it seems like somewhere around 6.30, 6.40 is when Terry dropped David back off. So you have, you know, I would say at a minimum an hour and 20 minutes, if not more, that Terry's time's unaccounted for. And then, you know, when we go into, we, we kind of briefly covered, but some of Terry's statements uh, as far as what he said, he is, he is put, said that he was at the, at the pipe searching by the, searching the discovery site at 630, which that statement is concerning to me. But again, that's, you know, well, as I stated, my position on any theories on the case right now are, are pretty much limited to let's test the evidence and find out because at this, at this right. point, all we can do is, is speculate about what actually happened. You know, there's, there's some other questions in there. Um, I'm kind of curious your thoughts about, so, so we go back to, you know, Jim Clemente's concern that, that Terry called from Catfish Island and had the police meet him there. I think we have pretty, pretty well determined that the Hobbs did not have a phone. That's right. So Terry gets a pass on the, on why he called from there. My concern concerns two things. Still the fact that he had the police meet him there rather than at their house uh, is a concern. But but even more so, the big question I have is why call the police based on everything yeah. we know he has. Yes. And down at the dead end, Regina Meek was there. David spoke with Regina Meek. He's spoken with John Mark Byers. He knows the police are searching for all the boys. Why call the police is, 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 is baffling to me. And, and if we have, you know, if you take, you know, what, what Don Morris said that, that Dana, Dana had stopped and talked to Terry and told her already, told him already that the two boys were missing. Uh, and that's a question. Yes, and, and, sorry, I just want to add there. I, there was one thing I forgot to mention was that Dana also, uh, when you read the, the Mark Byers uh, police statement from 93, he says, Dana Moore told us that Terry Hobbs is out looking for the boys also. He mentions that Dana had spoken to Terry. So right. uh, the fact that they did speak, I think, is indisputable. It's just the, the, the question of when. So, sorry, go on. Right. Yeah. And, and it's just, so it's he knows he's talked to, to, to Dana, who at that point has seen all three boys together. And, and one thing that I want to ask David about, and I don't remember if I've ever asked him this. And I don't know if you caught, you know, if there were any context clues that had come out in his interview, but I don't know if David, it seems like David said he didn't know there was three kids missing until they got down to the pipe or down to the, to the dead end. He's a little bit unclear on that. And he, he seemed to me to be saying kind of two things, which is that 
One, when Terry came back, and yeah, sorry, this is another thing that I, I, I should have mentioned. When Terry comes back the second time, he has spoken to someone. And this is a new another clue that this uh, conversation with Dana Moore took place in the interval while he was gone. Because David actually says by then he had talked to someone. And he says that, you know, he went to David Dana Moore's house. And I think he's basing that on what Terry had said. And we, uh, but anyway, uh, he says Terry had spoken to someone when he came back. That's right. Yep. And as they're making this trip, somewhere along the way, uh, he put together that they were now looking for three boys. And it's not clear. It, he does. He only mentions that that part about looking for three boys after they get to the dead end. So it's not clear to me whether he put it together at that moment or if he put it together on the way as they're making the, the trip. But what is clear is that he says that Terry in the interval between when he left at 630 or 640 or whenever it was during that interval between when he left and when he came back, Terry spoke to one of the parents. Yeah. So he, you know, he, he's, he's aware. Terry is at least aware that, you know, these boys are all missing. Dana had seen the three boys together hours before that. So, she, so he would know that the, that the three boys were together. And, you know, another thing that kind of jumped out at me, and it could be nothing, could just be checking, but is the fact that according to Dawn, the conversation with Terry happened at his house. So at eight o'clock when, you know, now it's been, it's, it's now three over three hours that Stevie's been missing and he's supposed to be out searching that Dana finds him at home. And I, and, and right. I'm not asking you to give me an answer to this, but the question I keep asking myself is why was he at home instead yes. of out searching? Yes. It's, it's the big question. And even if this took place before eight o'clock what was he doing there and yeah it it's just a big question mark in general why during this crucial period from 6 30 to 8 p.m which we thanks to your investigation we have narrowed down is pretty much the time frame when we think the murders happened the, it's not only the fact that there's this discrepancy between what he told police, which is that he searched by the crime scene, then he went to David's, and then they were together the whole time. There's a discrepancy that David says that, no, he wasn't with me. But not only does he say he wasn't with me, but the time that he wasn't with him is this very crucial period from 6.30 to 8 p.m. So anything that he's doing in that time why is he at home? What is he doing during that period? And why is he so adamant about saying that he was with David during that period, even going as far as to contradict, you know, 15 years of police records, trials, interviews, statements from everyone else in the case. He does not align with any of them. And, placing himself as finishing all of his actions before 6.30 and then being with David. Like, that is a, a huge, huge discrepancy. And it, it, it's at a very key time. So, 
what was he doing at home? Yeah, I agree with you. It's 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 a big and intriguing question. You know, and then another thing, and this will be the last thing we'll cover. And we I know we mentioned we were going to go over the Miss Kelly uh, confession too, but sure, sure, we're an hour in. But I, I think I, I I pretty much can guess your yeah, thoughts. Sorry, on- I- I hope I've I've been coherent and not too rambling. Oh, this has been, I could sit there and talk to you all day. Unfortunately, we live in different parts of the world. And while you're getting ready to uh, probably come up on lunchtime, it's bedtime here the day before. Got uh, it. Got <laughs> it. I, I got to get to, I got to, <laughs> and I got to get to work also. I, I, I have to, to make money sometimes. <laughs> right, right, right. So I guess the last thing that I want to touch on was in, in the second part of David's interview. And I had mentioned this previously on the podcast where he's, gone into in more detail with me uh but david talks about how when the investigators finally came and and david uh or terry came to david's work to try to tell him what happened and what he needs to say what did you make of that yeah uh, it's it's very interesting uh because again how do i put this like if terry is right and, the, and this is the way I look at this. If Terry is right, and they were together from 6.30 on until he left to go pick Pam up for work, then David would have absolutely no reason to uh, lie about that. Absolutely none that I can think of to, to lie about that. Because if Terry is telling the truth, and they were together during that period, well, then they're both cleared. And so why would he place Terry as being somewhere else and open suspicion on Terry for no reason? And it's either, in my mind, that they were both doing something that they shouldn't have been doing during that time, or one of them is lying. Right. So... The fact that, you know, Terry seems to be, if, if we take the hypothesis that Terry Hobbs is the killer, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use an if, I don't know anything, you don't know anything, we don't need more theories, as, you, as you've already said, but if, t- supposing, presuming that he, that he is guilty, the DNA hit, having uh, Jacoby's hair, there along with his gives him some leverage over David, I would say, because now anything that he's implicated in, uh, David is implicated in also. And so for him to then be coming and saying, no, we were together. We were together. And that's what he actually, if you watch the, the West Memphis, when they do the taped phone call, he does the same thing. He says, you don't remember us being out together looking for those three boys? Like, he is really putting the onus on David to say, uh, no, we were together during that time. And I think that's part of if I were uh, David Jacoby's shoes, I would. That would really bother me. It would, and you can see that it bothers him. Why is this person going out of their way to say that I was with them and I wasn't? One thing I want to point out is that David has never said to me that he thinks Terry is the killer. Uh, I want to make right. that clear, and it's something that he's. I've watched him 
on, on a number of occasions be brought to tears over the fact that Terry might be. And so he, he's, he's always been very reluctant to say he did. You know, he, you, you heard a little bit of that when he talked about his interactions with John Douglas, when John was telling him about the, you know, the incident with the neighbor lady in the shower and, and, you know, shooting Pam's brother and all these different things. You know, David said, you know, I don't you show me some proof that that happened, then I'll I'll help you because he just didn't want to didn't want to believe that that that's possible. And still to this day, you know, if you were to ask David, I want to put words in his mouth. But when I've asked him, you know, do you think that Terry had something to do with this? He just he always just says, I, I don't know. I don't want to believe that, but I don't know. But it but it bothers him a lot that Terry has. And it's you you hit the nail on the head as far as the leverage goes, because according to David, that's how Terry has always approached him about it is they're trying to put us in prison. You need to say what I'm telling you to say, or they're going to put us in prison that he's, you know, he he's used that as a way to try to convince David to confirm his story because, you know, if he doesn't, then, then, you know, he's going to be on the hook too. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, it's a double mind bender for David. It's, you know, did this guy that I know do this? And then is this guy that I know that did this trying now to involve me in it? (laughs) Right. It's, uh, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. And, you know, one thing that I, when I was listening to the second part of the interview, it's, David, the way that he talks about this, it, it, it reminds me a lot of, of Danny Hartley, actually. Um, mm-hmm. When you interviewed Danny Hartley, they both have that same kind of like hesitant manner in talking about this. Like they, they don't want to think about it. They don't want to remember it. And it comes down to this question of, for them, could I have done more? Is there something that I could have done? And have I been wrong in what I've been thinking about this all these years? I hear a lot of similarities in the, in the way that they talk about. It. Yeah, definitely. Uh, same. And, you know, it, it, as far as uh, to circle back to close this out, you know, as far as David's believability for lack of a better term in, in his interview, you mentioned at the beginning that, that David seemed to be, recalling things as though he was in in real time and we actually had a a, a law enforcement officer uh steven was his first name i can't remember his last name that uh is studying statement analysis that that mentioned that and it, it does and, and i think it would anybody that has only listened to the interviews and hasn't watched them on our youtube channel i would recommend watching them because I, I don't know if, if you had this experience david but for me seeing it explains a lot because like you said it sounds like he's reading up looking at a map or whatever but actually what he's doing is he's he's like going back to that time. He's gesturing with his hands and he's saying we turned this way and then it was it was Seventh Street and then we went that way, which, you know, to me and, and to Jim Clemente also when he watched the videos, it had a ring of of truth to it that it, it, it's an indicator of of his veracity that he that he was retelling the story in kind of a present tense. I don't know what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, no, and I was I was actually very surprised. I had a completely different impression of that when I watched uh, the video because, like I said, I was certain. And there's a moment, and you can go back. Everybody that's listening, as you can, and everybody else too, can go back and listen. When he's 
describing their first search. And he says, I, we, we were going down, I think it was seventh street. Was it seventh street? Yeah. Seventh street. Like th that's what he says. And that, yeah, yeah. Seventh street. It's what you say when you have put something together in your mind in that moment. So when I was listening, the way I envisioned that was that he's looking at a map while he's saying this and going, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Uh, here. Yeah, it's 7th Street. 7th Street. So I was very surprised to see that he did not have a map in front of him when he was doing that. So where is that coming from? That the only, you know, he's clearly trying to see it in his mind is, is what I would guess. And he's He's seeing the street sign in his head as he's telling you. Right. And you can, you can, you can see again, you know, in the video, you can literally see him figuring these things out, which for me, you know, and you know, my, my, your experience in this and, and also that, that, um, Steven are, are one of our law enforcement listeners, uh, have much more experience in training than I do, but that's one of the things that, that, that Jim has taught me is, you know, is he looking you in the eye and trying to convince you or is he trying to figure it out? And my impression of David throughout the interviews is that he's trying to figure out, trying to remember and put pieces of a puzzle back together in his mind. Yeah. And it's not something that he wants to do either. I mean, I mean it is, but it's very distressing for him to do it. And that that's clear when you're when you when you're watching it. Like it putting himself back in that moment is not a fun experience for him at all. Right. And that was the you know, the, and that's why we saw a lot of those emotions. And and with that, Wendell, I'm gonna let you get back to work and, and make some money. Thank you so much for taking the time, not just to today tonight, to uh, morning for you, night for me. But, but in general, the amount of time that you've put in, and I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of the listeners who have been so actively engaged, not just with this case, but all of our cases. All of your, your help and your work means the world to me. And for to you, Wendell, specifically, I really appreciate it. Hopefully you'll, you'll stick around for season eight. Yeah, uh, for sure. This is, it's been a lot of fun. I hope that all of you were as intrigued by Wendell's breakdown as I was. I find the work that he's been doing fascinating, and I think that through his work, we now have a very solid timeline to work from. As I mentioned, this will be the Season 5 finale, but much like the first time we broke in Season 5, that doesn't mean that this is the end. There is still work being done behind the scenes, and I still need all of you to continue to put pressure on Scott Ellington to test the evidence. And as soon as I have any updates on that front, I will come back and continue to record more episodes of Season 5 when we have new information. We've also had several people that are related to the case or believe they have information on the case come forward, and I'm currently vetting all of that information. And for any of it that seems relevant to our investigation, again, we will return to Season 5. So while we're calling this the Season 5 finale... This case and this investigation is definitely far from over. We will not stop until we have solved the murders of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. As the work on the West Memphis 3 case continues to go on behind the scenes, it's time for us, myself, and all of you, the audience, to shift gears into a brand new case. 
few months ago, Allison Clayton and Mike Ware from the Innocence Project of Texas approached me about a case that they had been working on. This case is unique, and it's nothing like anything we've ever done before. In this particular case, the Innocence Project does not have the resources to fully investigate to determine where and how to allocate the limited resources that they do have. They brought the case to us, and our job is to determine if Deborah Perringer is innocent or guilty. And that journey begins when we launch into Season 8 of Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. We also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.